Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, every single week the show comes out every Friday, available from our website, theretrohour.com, from iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast client. And every week, Ravi and I run through the top retro stories of the week, and then we hand over the second half of the show to a very special guest. Yes, and the guest we have today has sent us some rather nice books. Yes, that... one of which I have in my hand here. Yeah, Dan's currently <laughs> trying to hold because it's very heavy, hardback. I was going to say, I can't hold it in one hand, actually. Yeah, you should have <laughs> seen my postman's face this morning. <laughs> he was uh, standing there, you know. Now, the chap that we've got on in just a bit is uh, Sam Dyer, and he's from this company called Bitmap Books, and they've done like the, um, the Commodore 64 Visual Compendium book, uh, the Amiga one, there's a ZX Spectrum one as well. Uh, the one that I'm holding in my hand here, which is called Artcade, I I'm trying to show it to a camera, even though we're like on the radio. <laughs> yeah. whatever. Um, the book of classic arcade game artwork. Now, I will say this book, not only will it appeal to someone that loves arcade games and has got memories of that era, but I think looking at the quality of this and how gorgeous the images look, anyone that just really appreciates nice looking art. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. And uh, the kind of quality of it is really nice as well. This isn't a rubbish production Kickstarter thing. This is like mm. a... a, a proper production publishing house for computer games. Well, Sam, I mean, he's got a design background and uh, he's also a massive uh, Commodore fan. You know, he grew up with the C64, then the Amiga and Atari ST and stuff as well. So um, we're going to get him on and kind of get a bit of a history of his like experiences, like growing up with that 8-bit and 16-bit era and also his arcade memories and find out a bit more about the process of making these um, really impressive books. Yeah, the kind of passion he puts in is amazing. Absolutely. So Sam's going to be on the show in around 30 minutes from now. Uh, also, we've got an event coming up at the end of this month. Unfortunately, um, I'm not going to be there, but um, Ravi and hopefully Joe, who regularly appears on our podcast, will be there as well if you want to come along and say hi yeah so this is the mgpx 16 which is the mature gamers podcast expo somehow we've managed to uh blag our way in there <laughs> and uh this is in nottingham at the mercure hotel which is basically in nottingham's lace market okay so it's on july the 30th on saturday and it's between old video gaming lounge and the National Video Gaming Arcade. So this is in, like, the video gaming hub of Nottingham, and you can get discounted tickets mm-hmm. for the video game arcade if you come. So even if you don't want to <laughs> um, come to our event, you just pop in, get a ticket, and go to the NBA. Yeah, if you don't want to meet Ravi, just put your head down. Yeah. Best. <laughs> but um, we'll be giving out £3,000 worth of prizes, and, um, you know, you'll be able to come along with us, have a drink, have a chat, and we can watch... Mature Gamers Podcast Live as well. And Ravi will buy your pint? Oh, no, don't promise <laughs> this to everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, I'm best man at a wedding that day. So. Yeah, so you can't come down. But we will be doing an event later mm-hmm. in the year, in around October, that we'll uh, inform you about later. Yeah, and there will be a few more in the summer, I'm sure. We'll be at play in uh, September, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to come along for this, um, MGPX16, uh, happening on Saturday, July 30th in Nottingham. Like Ravi said, you know, you can make it, make an afternoon of it, come and see the National Video Games yeah. Arcade, and there's that new uh, video games bar that Ravi and I visited actually the other week. Well, there's going to be plenty of stuff to play on as well and kind of keep you entertained. So even if it's to pop down and have a drink and just say, hi, I like your podcast. Yeah, That'd yeah. That'd be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so everything you need to know, all the details of the event will be on our website, theretrohour.com. Right, before we chat to Sam Dyer, let's get through this week's uh, retro gaming stories. It's quite a lot this week, actually, been a pretty lively one, including, this is quite bizarre, a Sega party at the top of the Shard in London. Yeah, this is so cool. I want to go. So, Time Out, who are a massive kind of entertainment 
group in London. They mm-hmm. host all of these massive, great events. They're working with a company called Restron, and they're going to the Shard. And if you don't know what the Shard is, it's that giant kind of Lord of the Rings-looking tower <laughs> in the middle of London. And they're going to be at the very top. So this is going to be really cool in the Sky Bar, level 69 to 72. So they're going to be having a classic console gaming session with a Mega Drive celebration. They're going to have a silent disco and uh, kind of loads of old games like Sonic 2, Micro Machines, of course, Mortal Kombat. A real celebration of Sega pretty much then. Yeah, totally. But this is uh, for the mainstream. It's not just for us geeks. This is a, a big mainstream event done. Well, like you said, Time Out London. I mean, you know, you couldn't get more like kind of mainstream entertainment than Time Out magazine and stuff, could you really? No. And the fact that it's taking place in the Shard as well. I mean, if you haven't been to this place before, you can't miss it in the middle of London. 800 feet high. Yeah. Uh, complete 360 view of the entire city above it as well. Normally where like, you know, all these like, you know, rich kind of playboys go to hang out and like drink martinis and yeah, stuff. Th- in it, yeah, but... this isn't in a church hall. <laughs> this is in like an amazing place. But it's just, um, you know, we've mentioned on the show over the last few weeks and I think the timing of us doing this podcast and starting it at the beginning of this year now we've We've got movies coming out about the, you know, the old video game industry. And the fact that events like this are being held by Time Out magazine at the Shard to celebrate a Sega console from like 25 years ago. Yeah. It's just, it's incredible, isn't it? It is really showing how retro is uh, banging on the doors in the mainstream. Absolutely. So um, there is actually no information on ticket pricing on this, but being <laughs> that it's quite an exclusive venue... Um, might be a bit more than the usual retro gaming event, but... <laughs> yeah, um, if you want to keep some kind of eye on it, I'd probably look on the Restron Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. which is R-E-Z-T-R-O-N. Okay, we'll pop that in the show notes yeah. if you want to find out a bit more. If you want to head along to this uh, rather exclusive Sega event in London, sounds awesome, actually. Yep. Now, I did mention this um, Doom reboot that obviously everyone's been loving recently, the one that's just come out on the PC, on the uh, PS4, on the Xbox One. Um, unofficially, you know, Doom fans are calling it Doom 4. Okay. <laughs> Even though it's just called Doom, um, if you buy it. Great game. Um, I've been, you know, I've played a couple of hours of it now, really enjoying it. However, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. Have you ever heard of uh, Zed Doom? Uh, yeah, wasn't that like an old version? Or... Yeah, well, it was kind of like an enhancement of the original Doom engine, um, but it had a load more that you could kind of do with it, like you could do jumping and you know, oh, okay. get it so if you they, they added features and uh, yeah, and you made could do it a bit faster and yeah, yeah, and you could kind of put like advanced Doom, you know, WAD files for Doom. You could put like advanced ones in there. Okay. So someone who um, is obviously a big fan of both generations of Doom has actually kind of done a a deport, you could say, of Doom 4 and put it on the original Doom engine. So he's got like all the old textures and all the old kind of weapons and stuff here? Yeah, so basically the, the new Doom game, he's ported that down to the original Doom engine. Excellent. So, you know, all the old school graphics and all that there as well. And wow. it's kind of a... I, I've, I've watched videos of this, I haven't had a chance to play it properly yet, but from what I've read of it, basically he's kind of sat down and paid a lot of attention to how the new game works and kind of replicated it. In this old engine. So, do you think that this said Doom is ported to other systems and this may be able to work on some weird old school setup? Well, I know Zed Doom, I've only ever seen it for the PC, but I, I think it's open source. So, so maybe there could be, you know, you may be able to play the new Doom on your really old machine <laughs> somehow. Using or like your Amiga 1200 or something. Yeah, or, <laughs> or even, you me. know, your 386. <laughs> it's just amazing that, you know, uh, people do take the time to do this kind of thing, but I think it's dead cool. I mean, uh, it's on the website that's hosting this is uh, ModDB, which I know you used to visit that website back in your uh, Doom Wad days. Oh, yeah, you? getting all the, what is it, Chocolate Doom. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember yeah. and, uh, <laughs> Simpsons Doom and all of that stuff. So it's free to download if you want to try it out, and uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes, as always. Now, 
any British gamer that grew up in the 80s and early 90s, and uh, particularly those of us, you know, played on the old uh, the Commodore 8-bit machines, there's one company that were really every school kid could afford their games. Legendary British company, Mastertronic. Ah, now, I don't know much about Mastertronic because... I'm afraid I was out of that eight-bit period. I was a you were Atari in that, weren't you? Yeah, then, PC. I, I was a uh, stuck in my Amstrad, <laughs> away from everything. <laughs> um, and this wasn't a nice Amstrad; it was an old Amstrad PC. Yeah, but um, Mastertronics weren't they the ones that did the NES? Uh, not the NES, the Master System. Yeah, they did some Sega stuff back in the early days. The it, original yeah. distribution in the UK. I think they did help with that, but I remember okay. them more for um, it was the 199 range that was a big thing when I was at school. Because I remember like, Commodore 64 games and stuff, they'd all be, you know, the big budget ones would be like 10, 15 quid. Okay. Um, but Mastertronic really got it right. And they, they released, the, they call it the 199 range because all the games were £1.99. Wicked. So, you know, you, with your pocket money on a Saturday, go to like, you know, our price and you could uh, afford a game with two quid. But that's even like, you know, the, a little bit more than the price of the tape. It's not... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get a bank tape was about a quid, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So but I remember like, you know, a few of the titles here. We're looking on um, Indie Retro News, great news website. And, you know, Neil's listed a few of his favourites here. Kane, Kickstart, which I used to play in the Commodore 16. That was an amazing game. Finders Keepers, One Man and His Droid. These were really, you know, anyone that kind of was a fan of the, you know, machines like the Amstrad CPC, ZX Spectrum, C64, these titles were like, you know. You must have survived on then, Dan. They must have been like your food when you were a kid <laughs> with the um, Commodore Plus. Four. Oh, the Plus 4, yeah. <laughs> wait, what? I mean, Mastertronic supported the Plus 4 until about 1990, I think. You know oh, what I mean? Wow, like so... eight years after everyone else did. Yeah. So, yeah. The re- and they also had, um, you know, stuff like Mad Games. It was kind of their spin-off as well. Uh, but the reason we're talking about them is, um, I mean, obviously we're talking about these, um, these books in uh, just a bit with Sam Dyer, but also there is going to be the Mastertronic Archives book Oh, wow. So I can actually look at this and find out what they were all about. Oh, exactly, yeah. So they've done a Kickstarter on this, and uh, I think in their final 24 hours, they actually went over um, how much they needed for the pledge. So they have now got the money. It's going to happen. Excellent. And there's a few different tiers as well. So you can get um, there's either the normal standard edition of this book, which gives you uh, 256 pages, covers all the 199 range as well. And there's an enhanced version of it that's basically double the amount of pages. It covers all the spin-off stuff, you know, like the Mad Label and that kind of stuff too. Director's cut. Yeah, well, <laughs> essentially you get double, you know, double the uh, information there. And also, if you get like the the top end, you get a and I think this is dead cool a USB cassette. What's one of those? Then? <laughs> so, from what I can gather, you look at it here, and it's got the original Mastertronic artwork in an original cassette tape box. You know, yeah. the inlay looks like an old school game, and it's got in the corner where it used to say like uh, there was always a little like a corner of the case would say like C sixty four or Spectrum. It tell you what platform it was for. And on here it says PDF. So you open it, and there's a, a cassette inside with like the label on and everything like that. But instead of having like the magnetic spool at the bottom. You pull down a USB stick. Oh, cool. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's like a kind of fancy case-themed USB. Yeah, yeah. and it's got Amazing. the PDF version of the book on there as well. Oh, that's cool. USB cassettes. I need to look out for those. Oh, dude, it just even looking at that old Mastertronic um, cassette inlay, though, that just takes me right back to being like, you know, seven, eight years old what again. What a nice way to present, you know, it is, uh, yeah. a, a book on an old... <laughs> Cassette, yeah. Well, you look at it, even here, like you know the Mastertronic Archives logo. That that Mastertronic logo was very, it was all neon, very proper, you know, mid eighties. Yeah. So, um, but I just love the fact that stuff like this is coming out and uh, people are documenting this kind of, you know, because we, we get the you know the movies being made about Sega and Nintendo and all that. But Mastertronic was kind of twenty British kid that grew up in the late eighties and early nineties. 
that was kind of like our Nintendo, you know what I mean? They well, were like, that, well, that's what this podcast is trying to do, mm-hmm. keep the kind of British stuff and the European stuff alive because mm-hmm. not many people have talked about it for years, but now all this stuff's coming out, so we've got loads of content. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyone that, you know, is flooded with nostalgia by just the name Mastertronic, um, highly recommend that you get hold of this. It's uh, The Kickstarter goal has been reached, so all the information, if you want to order that, will be on our website, theretrohour.com. Now, talking about old games, um, it's quite unique to find a little secret in a game 33 years after it originally came out, but this has actually happened. Yeah, it's not Easter, but we're (laughs) going to be talking about Easter eggs. Now, explain what Easter eggs are for people that might not know. Okay, so Easter eggs are either little pieces of code or little hidden parts of levels or even in applications that um, coders have left in there, sometimes with the knowledge of the company, Mm -hmm. sometimes without. So uh, there can be all sorts, but... um, What's happened is a guy by the name of 4AM, who's a hacker who's currently working for archive.org, removing all the DRM coding from Apple II games. He's cracking and Apple II games. Them. That's yeah. awesome. So he's kind of living in the past in his mind doing this, but uh, so far he's got through 683 games. Bloody hell. Which is uh, quite a lot of work. You know, I'm picturing here, though, even his name 4AM, I'm picturing like some guy in his pants with an Apple II <laughs> at 4 o'clock in the morning hacking these games, That's it. cigarette in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he's, he's doing a good job and they're getting chucked up and he's doing such a good job on the game Gumball, he's just found a scream after 33 years that no one else has found. (laughs) Wow. And it says, aha, you made it. Either you're an excellent game player um, or a program breaker. (laughs) (laughs) The latter in this case. Yeah. You are certainly one of the few few people that will ever see this screen. So that's been hidden in there for 33 years and he's the first guy to find it. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it, that people still find... I mean... Easter eggs in games have always been... I remember, you know, before the days of the internet, you'd kind of... People in the school playground would be stuff like, you know... Do you remember, like, the Lara Croft, like, uh, hack on the PlayStation to see her naked? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, even... You talk about that, like... I used to do a lot of Vice City Mm -hmm. on the uh, GTA, on the PlayStation and on the PC, and all the Easter eggs would be the same on there, and Mm -hmm. that was amazing. There was even a room you'd jump in. And it had an Easter egg on a podium. Yeah, on Vice <laughs> City. Yeah, and it's a happy I, Easter. I just remember the one when you went inside, it was like, you know, the Statue of Happiness, or whatever it's called, like the Statue of Liberty thing. Yeah, yeah. You could actually go inside it, and there was like a beating heart inside. Oh, nice. And it was really weird, and you tried to shoot it, but yeah, it, the statue <laughs> wouldn't die. And it kind of got us thinking about other Easter eggs in games as well. There was one in um, one of the Alien Breed games on the Amiga. I think you put it into, <laughs> this is going to offend some people, uh, you put it into Atari ST mode. And basically, the graphics are just got really low res and crap. <laughs> okay. Well, well, even to the point that I remember at the school IT labs, we'd sit there and there was like ways to open up a level that looked like Doom on Excel, where right. all the programmers' faces are on there. There was like different versions of Word where you could open Minesweeper. There was hidden games inside. I think Space Invaders in one of them as well, wasn't there? Yeah, or something? Yeah. yeah. I do remember that. And this little ASCII Star Wars game they had on Telnet. I can't remember what that was, but uh, you used to connect to a little Telnet address and then it would play the whole of Star Wars, but in ASCII. Yeah. So, you know, R2 would be made out of <laughs> lines and dots. you just watch it through, wouldn't you? I think you can still see that in like some Java thing on a website somewhere. Um, but I remember in like Lotus 2 on the Amiga, I think you type in ducks as your password, D-U-X, and then you get like a little like kind of, oh, it was either like a shoot 'em up kind of game would come on, or it was like some little ducks that you'd have to jump over or something. There was some hidden game in there. I was remember typing ducks though. 
And a bit more recently, do you remember the one on Call of Duty Black Ops 2? No. You've seen that one. There's a level on there called Newtown. It's like, you know, recreation of a kind of like a, a nuclear testing ground. Post-apocalyptic. Well, it's yeah. more, more like a government kind of testing area okay. for nuclear, bo- okay. nuclear bombs. And you've got all these kind of mannequins there that are meant to, you know, represent people. And if you go around, you can shoot the heads off the mannequins. If you shoot the head off every single one, you can then play these like old Atari 2600 games. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're still hidden in games today, so... Well, listeners, if you know of any really cool Easter eggs, we'd love to hear about them and we'll do a, like, little top five Easter eggs on the next show or something. So I, I found a really random one actually recently um now <laughs> you know the amiga when you hold down both mouse buttons at the beginning at yeah, the start menu yeah, yeah so if you want to run like old games you can turn off like all the chipset stuff and you know it's useful for that i actually did it um one day not not too long ago actually and uh my mouse pointer had turned into a little pink loch ness monster <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what's going on here? And like, I thought maybe I've got a virus in memory or something, Googled it, and apparently that is in like the Amiga's Kickstart ROM. That's like a hidden Easter egg in there, that oh, on that wow. certain day, your, your pointer on the, on the early startup menu turns into a little pink Nessie. Do you remember years ago there was a, it was like a micro solder or something that someone had done on one of the boards, and you zoomed in really close with a magnifying, and it said Kill Gates? Oh, really? <laughs> what was that on? I can't remember. I just shoot. remember seeing a screenshot of H- it. Hidden, like, at microscopic level. Yeah, That's yeah. Crazy. It was a soldering, Kill Gates. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it was a fake or not, but, um, <laughs> yeah, we'd love to hear about your stuff. And uh, if you find any Easter eggs or anything, tell us on Twitter or Facebook. It would be great. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not following us on Twitter, we don't really mention Twitter much on the show, but, you know, we're quite act- active on there now, aren't we? Yeah, we've actually started to use it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century. Yeah, at um, yeah, Retro Hour UK, we are on Twitter, at Retro Hour UK. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us that way, uh, Facebook page as well, of course, search for The Retro Hour or uh, get all the links from our website, theretrohour.com. Now, we did have that movie recently. Covered a couple, actually, of Amiga movies. Uh, Viva Amiga, Bedroom Stabilians, Amiga Years. Yep. Um, on the other side of the coin, there is a movie that's been made at the moment about Atari. Well, after watching Bedroom Stabilians, Amiga Years, if I was an Atari fan, I would be one in a movie, to be honest, because... <laughs> You know, there was a section that wasn't so nice about the Atari, Yeah, let's be honest. Yeah, the, well, the ST in particular, wasn't it? Yeah. But this film here, which, you know, I've got high hopes for, even though I still haven't watched the uh, the 8-Bit Generation movie. Oh, God, we, we need to have a night where we sit down and watch it, mate. That I is... know, it, it, that looked amazing, actually. Yeah. You know, we did, we did talk about that a um, couple of months ago on the show now, and we had Bill Hurd on, who is an ex-Commodore engineer, who yeah. um, narrates that documentary. Uh, well, the guys behind that film have actually moved on to make a second film now, and it's called Easy to Learn, Hard to Master, The Fate of Atari. Ah. And also, this is narrated by Bill Hurd as well, which is quite interesting, him being a Commodore guy narrating an Atari documentary. Okay, but... so let me just check. What's the difference between this and Game Over, which was the Atari film before where they were tracking E.T.? Yeah, I think that was more about the crash, 1983 crash, really, wasn't it? just on the crash, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I think that was more about of... that. But essentially, I mean, you know, these guys made the film, um, you know, which, which had, like, Jack Tramiel's last interview and all that, so... These are guys that really want to focus more from the kind of the technological side of it, I suppose, rather than, you know, specific games and that and, kind of and thing. And kind of rather than the myths, the actual facts. And the, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the synopsis of the film here is before Google, Yahoo and even Apple, before the Silicon Valley cliche of informal dress code, skateboards running the corridors and while creativity became commonplace, one company embodied the digital economy lifestyle and business style. And that was Atari, and it was. I mean, you know, even like even before like Commodore and Apple got on the scene, you know, Steve Jobs worked for Atari for a while. Yeah, and, you know, we're Amiga guys, and, yeah, we have a little bit of fun poking 
uh, fun at the ST. Mm-hmm. But in the end of the day, we all come from the same family, and Atari were the arcade pioneers. You know, they were they started it all, really. So. Yeah, and I mean, look at that—that that they're they're eight-bit computers, like you know the Atari eight hundred, and uh, which you know Jay Miner, who developed the Amiga, actually worked on those machines beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the Amiga's kind of the successes of them, really, more than anything. And let's think about how many Steve Jobs films are out there, and yeah. how many bad Steve Jobs <laughs> films are out there. You know, we need Nolan Bushnell ones, and we need to get. Uh, Atari stuff out there, definitely. Well, this looks really interesting because it's 100 minutes long. So, you know, you're talking nearly a two-hour film here. Wow. Um, narrated by Bill Hurd, who, you know, obviously he did that last documentary. He's good at it. So yeah. the guy who wanted to do it again, he knows his stuff. Uh, what he says here is that they've actually got some uh, kind of people that haven't really told their story before. Like, there's a very rare one here with Warner VP, Manny Gerard, and a unique one with Atari CEO, Ray Kazar, I think that's how you pronounce his name, who was, uh, he was a guy who was responsible for their success and uh, he kind of, you know, rode through the, the video game crash he was around, about, around that time. Okay. And he's never been in a documentary before. Well, yeah, because they've, they had the last one with Jack Tramiel, didn't they, in the uh, generation? Yeah, well, he, yeah. he was in the last film, wasn't he? So, yeah, so. Well, there might be some footage, you know, of Jack talking about it, I presume. Yeah, maybe. And uh, Nolan's obviously in this as well. You couldn't do a documentary about Atari without Nolan. It sounds like they've film. really got some top guys doing this film. Oh, it sounds like, you know, I mean, it starts from like the Pong era, but, you know, looking at the, the screenshot here of the people they've been uh, talking to, you know, they've got like Leonard Tremiel there as well. So the assume it kind of goes up to like the Atari Jag era and that well, kind of era. I, I remember watching this Ian Lee documentary, Film Candy, years ago. Yeah. And they had a first explanation of the Pong machine and how they used a bread baking tray to connect the collect the coins <laughs> fake serial numbers and an old CRT TV and it was so fascinating so yeah. I can't wait to see this yeah well did they put they put different serial numbers on to like make it look like they sold more oh yeah they? yeah they were like a million and one yeah <laughs> I was like, these are flying out the door and it's pretty yeah. machine number three yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean I think this is really interesting at the moment though um, it is a kickstarter and uh, it's only got about a month left to go and they're only a quarter of the way there at the moment so we'll really fun this guys because uh, you know and spread it because this looks great. Absolutely. So uh, it's on Kickstarter. Uh, we'll provide links, obviously, in the usual places. Uh, they've only got $5,000 and they need 20,000 20, euros, actually, they need to get this film made. So absolutely, you know, this is a story that has to be told. Atari deserves some love. Definitely. From us as well. Sorry, <laughs> sorry guys, if we've been battering you recently. <laughs> I've got an Atari Jaguar, dude. I like the Jag. Oh, yeah. I'm probably the only guy in the world that likes a Jag. Oh, yeah, I forgot. How's your, how's your ST? And I've got an ST as well, yeah. yeah. yeah it's uh, yeah, in the wardrobe at the moment, yeah. but, you know, it'll be back out at some point, I'm sure. Well, my 4,000's in the wardrobe. <laughs> not room to get them all set up unfortunately <laughs> is it now this article on TechCrunch you found is quite interesting Bitcam tell us about this it's a retro camera yeah so it's it's like a little app mm-hmm. for your iPhone but do you remember when they had the Game Boy Advance cameras I've actually got one of them still yeah, <laughs> yeah. and the printer yeah this is similar resolution yeah so it kind of gives that old grayscale early internet it simulates a 16-bit processor. Instead of getting your Instagram images and doing them up and adding nice lighting, you can go the opposite way and degrade your images. Dude, you know, I've just thought, though, the amount of people, you know, Instagram did all that kind of analogue uh, photo filtering. This is going to be the next one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Game Boy Advance retro, camera. Retro <laughs> filtering, definitely. But, you know, really, I mean, you know, to kids that, like, you know, in the mid-'90s, Having a Game Boy with a camera like that, that was like, you know, the equivalent of a selfie back then, wasn't it? Yeah, well, they also have a little upgrade that you can get for it, which is an in-app purchase, which is instant colour graphics. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> you can even slightly upgrade it. <laughs> and uh, apparently, you know, if you go to the website as well, I think this is really cool. So it's on a website called uh, iconfactory.com, 
uh, slash bc.html. You go on there and it actually looks like a GeoCities website as well. It's even got the uh, under construction GIFs and all that there too. Yeah. <laughs> and I so. hope the images load really slowly as well. <laughs> Who, who'd have thought we'd have been saying that 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you want to get that, uh, you know, if you want a bit of nostalgia, it is available for uh, most of the major phone platforms by the looks of it. Now, did you know that Sonic 2 is the reason why video games are released on a Tuesday in America? I did not know that they were released on a Tuesday in America. But, yeah, that's crazy. Why? So over here, you know, most games come out like a Friday in the UK, don't they? Yeah, because we have a lot of game launches and people stay over overnight. Uh, or they have a, a, what is it, 12 o'clock midnight open. Well, for the big games and yeah, stuff, yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, it's always made more sense that they come out like nearer the weekend to me because people are going to be off work and all that. Um, but actually, this comes out of the Console Wars book. Okay. Uh, Blake Harris, he, he's been talking to, um, it's actually an article on Business Insider UK in their tech section. And uh, they're actually talking about, you know, the history of Sega, and it comes from Tom Kalinske as well. And that the story of this is that they wanted to release Sonic the Hedgehog 2 on a Tuesday, so they could call it Sonic Tuesday, as in number two. <laughs> okay. And apparently before that, video games in America, you know, they had no real day that they'd come out on, they'd just come out any time in the week. But ever since that, since that game came out on November 24th, 1992, the entire video game industry in America has been like, all right, well, Tuesdays is a game to release video games. So even now, 25 years later, they're still coming out on a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. They're still kind of following the pattern yeah. that has been defined all those years ago just for one simple little motto. <laughs> Sega started it all. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And uh, talking of Sega, well, not Sega, Nintendo, we've got the old Power Glove has actually got a use now. <laughs> <laughs> After 30 years. After 30 years, it has become useful. Have mm-hmm. you seen this video yet, Dan? It's so uh, this is, <laughs> someone's actually hacked a Nintendo Power Glove to control a drone. Yeah, Nolan Moore is the engineer. Right. And it's a power uh, Parrot AR drone quadcopter. Yeah, it's a beast, looking at it. Yeah, and he's managed to somehow change the interface so he can uh, control the drone with a swipe of his hand, <laughs> or the power glove. <laughs> so, yeah, he tilts his hand in the power glove right, the drone tilts right, puts it up and down, it flies around. I'm watching this video, and uh, probably quite wisely, being that it's controlled by a power glove, they've got him in like a safety cage. <laughs> in a cage, so he doesn't <laughs> hurt any kids. Because, <laughs> you know, those things can take your eye out. I wouldn't trust me in any way, that thing, no. controlled by the power glove. But that is just, you know... That is the absolute definition of cool to me. <laughs> totally, totally. And uh, what what was the other one where you had to break light beams? Oh, as a Sega one, was it? Yeah, if yeah. You could yeah. try and do that with a drone. That might be interesting. Ah, <laughs> oh, see, you know, a lot of these old technologies. I mean, it's good that people are finding a use for them after all this time as well. Because let's face it, the power glove wasn't any good at games, was it? So, no, no. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's finally useful. Now, speaking of uh, revisiting things from the past, did you know that you can now play a lot of classic games um, straight on your PC or Mac? Stuff like Sensible World of Soccer, stuff like Banshee, you know, the Amiga CD32 game? Yeah, yeah, Banshee's great. Yeah, you showed me that recently, which um, I hadn't played it much in the past, but it's kind of like a... A bit like 1942, isn't it? But nicer graphics. Yeah, what what was the uh, storyline at the beginning? Uh, Aliens captured... Uh, my dad and he refused <laughs> to give them the instructions for the microwave oven yeah <laughs> and that's why they invaded earth because of the microwave oven so it's better get in my plane and sort <laughs> them out yeah, yeah. <laughs> well there's this uh, website here it's called gamesnostalgia.com 
And what this guy's doing, he's got like a load of classic games in here: SimCity, Doom, uh, a lot of the LucasArts adventures, All Lemmings, Warcraft Two. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's a lot of old games, but you know, it can be stuff like he's got 3DO games on here. He's got Amiga Atari ST games and stuff as well. But really, he's actually packaged these for people that can't be bothered to set emulators up or don't have the knowledge. So what you do, for example, if you want to play this sensible world of soccer on your PC or Mac, you click it, downloads an archive. He's actually made it executable. Um, the emulator's all packaged in with it as well. Oh, so it wow. all just launches and like you just play the game. Excellent, because I'm just sitting here looking at Police Quest Open Season. Yeah. And wow, that game. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> so uh, this is amazing, yeah, because it means you don't have to mess about with DOSBox yeah. or any of this rubbish. He does all the effort. You know? Exactly. So literally point and click. So yeah. anyone that you know wants to revisit that, but you know, finding all the ROMs and that can be a pain sometimes. It's all kind of baked into this. So excellent. Yeah. yeah. Check that site out. Definitely. I'm gonna go home and play Please Quest. That's <laughs> the rest of your week sorted, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now there is a big show that's coming up in Scotland a bit later on this year with a, a rather a rather special guest. Mr. John Romero is gonna be there. Yeah, and there's uh, two other special guests as well, which is going to be Ravi Abbott and Dan Wood. Never heard of those guys. No, we? no, I think it's going to be our first trip to Scotland. Born in Scotland. Born in Scotland, yes. And uh, this is going to be at, it's a massive event, actually. It's uh, an entertainment expo and Comic-Con mm-hmm. uh, called Geek Out. And it's going to be on the 30th of October and, well, 29th and 30th at the Royal Highland Centre in Edinburgh. So I've looked at the pictures of this venue and it looks massive did they have play scotland here as well yeah, they've, the just, yeah. they've just done play scotland there mm-hmm. as well so it's the same arena i think and there's gonna be a lot uh, cosplay there as well isn't it like a big prize for cosplay there uh, well they've got a two thousand pound prize for cosplay which is quite high already and i'm, think, uh, I'm thinking as well the fact that it's like the weekend of halloween you're yeah. gonna see some some good costumes there good cosplay. <laughs> they've got um uh, i don't know who this guy is paul warren mm-hmm. seems to be Harry Potter right. and stuff. There's a guy from the Doctor Who special effects lab, John Davy, who's been in loads of episodes, and there's probably going to be a lot of Doctor Who stuff there. So, uh, yeah, come along if you're in Scotland. We'll keep plugging it and telling you of the up-and-coming guests because I think they've just kind of started announcing stuff. So lots more guests are going to come out and info. And we might be doing an event there. Uh, we might be doing a live show. We're not quite sure yet. Mm-hmm. We'll try and work out what we're going to do. We're going to be there either way, yeah, aren't we? Yeah, we'll but be there. Um, uh, I think, you know, cause you, you've been chatting to the organisers behind this as well. And you know, it is kind of a geek conference, you know. They've even got, like, Slammer off Ghostbusters there and all that kind of thing. All the kind of culture that, you know, like, people that are into our show probably well, like. Well, what, the, what he said to me was that they wanted to aim to be like a Comic-Con. Yeah. But more on a technology kind of aspect, mm-hmm. less on a you know, collecting merchandise and this kind of thing. There's going to be quite a big focus on retro gaming too. Yeah, well, if you've got John Romero as your as your main guest at the moment, it's definitely technology-based. Absolutely, yeah. Relevant, so, you know. We'll obviously pop links in, uh, in the show notes if you want to book your tickets and all that for that, but yeah, that's definitely one to look forward to a bit later on this year. It looks massive, so... Yeah, come down and buy us a whiskey. <laughs> and, and I'll leave my Scottish accent at home. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, just before we get to uh, this week's special guest then, I thought this was quite... Um, Quite big news. It's actually made a lot of the um, main news sites over the weekend. Obviously, it was a Queen's 90th birthday. Uh, Team 17 founder, Debbie Beswick, has been made an MBE. Where's she from as well, Dan? She's from Nottingham, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Now, uh, Debbie was there right at the start with Martin Brown. Um, obviously, you know, the uh, the company were huge back in the day. She was there, you know, when Worms first came around. And, yeah. uh, 
not only because, you know, she, she's someone behind a legendary British company as well, but also the fact that, you know, this lady was behind a lot of the games that we used to, you know, play as teenagers and kids and stuff as well. It's just nice to see her getting recognised in something as mainstream as being made an MBE. It's like... It's great. And I think Team 17 are an amazing company because they've managed to ride the wave. Mm-hmm. They've managed to ride the wave of the new generation stuff. Yeah. But still stick to their roots, which is games like The Escapist, which are kind of pixel blocky based games that could have come out on the Amiga 500. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're kind of in this indie game scene at the moment. And they're really seeming like a fresh new company. There was a, for a while, I felt there was a kind of a stagnant vibe about Team 17 where they yeah. were just producing Worms games. <laughs> yeah. And it was just a like, new Worms game it. every six months. <laughs> yeah. But then all these kind of new great ones like Flockers and Way uh, to the Woods, we've talked about before. Yeah. Way yeah. to the Woods. This is real innovative stuff. And uh, Worms WMD coming out. You know, they've got this uh, Beyond Eyes, which is a 10-year-old blind girl that walks around the world and interacts with it. You know, real different kind of concepts. Pushing the the boundaries as well. Totally, totally. And I think the fact that Debbie's been there since, you know, pretty much day one, and, uh, you know, she's she's one of the few female owners of a a business in the video games industry as well, you know, so... Yeah, that's that's also an excellent thing to be pushing. Absolutely, so congratulations, Debbie. Now, thank you for checking out this week's episode of The Retro Hour, guys. Of course, we'll be back again next Friday. You can download it, as always, from our website, theretrohour.com, SoundCloud, YouTube... Yeah, iTunes. You, you can tweet us, Facebook us, <laughs> interact, guys, and uh, spread the retro hour. Yes, do tell your friends. Now then, we're going to hand you over to this week's special guest, the guy behind some of the best video games books that we've seen recently. We're going to get the story behind these and a bit of, you know, reminiscing about the Commodore days and the arcades back in the 90s and 80s. Yeah, we have the designer, Sam Dyer. And we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Sam Dyer from Bitmap Books. How are you doing, Sam? I'm very well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. No problem. We thought we'd get you on because um, Ravi and I have been really impressed with these books that we've been uh, having a look at that you were kind enough to send us a few sample copies of. Yes, yes. Uh, stuff like the uh, Commodore 64 visual compendium, the Amiga one as well. Um, there's an arcade book as well that you've done that we'll talk more about in just a moment. But I thought it might be quite interesting to get a bit of background on you um, and find out, Sam, what was your first experience with a computer then? Where did it all start? Well, I'm a, I'm a Commodore boy through and through which you'll probably be quite pleased to hear. Nice. Uh, my, my, my first experience was uh, Commodore 64, which was handed down from my uncle. Um, I must have got him from school one day um, around about 1989, and it was sort of in front of the telly all set up, and my dad explained to me that it had been sort of handed down by, un- by my uncle, and it was called a Commodore 64. It all just started from there, really. I mean, I only had a few games at the time, but I was just hooked. I just used to spend hours and hours sat in front of the telly, legs crossed, playing these games and it just continued for years you know every christmas and birthday i'd get the latest ocean game such as batman the movie you know games like that gremlin games mastertronic and it just as i said it just all started from there and absolutely loved the commodore 64 it, and it's really where the inspiration for bitmap books came from it was the graphics um and the loading screens that just captivated me on that machine were you uh, reading any C64 mags at the time? Or? I wasn't at the time. I think that came later. I certainly remember 
well, I suppose it would have been about 92, 93 reading magazines like Commodore format, because I was probably a bit too young, really, to be into magazines and stuff. It really was just all about the games and swapping games with mates and all that sort of stuff. But you mentioned Commodore format then. They did go for years, like, after anyone expected them to. I think it was like 94, 95 they eventually packed up, wasn't it? Yeah, it didn't start. I think the Commodore 64 had actually been stopped in production when that magazine started, which is just incredible, really, nowadays, isn't it? But... They obviously saw a gap in the market that it was the Commodore 64 was still popular. <laughs> it kept on going. It was really was was really, really popular magazine. Well, even in um, I remember like you know about 91, 92. Do you remember Commodore brought out that um, console version of the Commodore 64 as well? Yeah, the GS. Yes. Oh God. That was on the front cover of the first ever Commodore format. It was like the launch sort of um, edition had that on the front cover. But no, I, I never actually saw one until till I knew like a few years ago when I started getting back into sort of you know retro gaming and all that sort of stuff. So. I remember my local Tandy was selling them off for 19 quid each and they go on eBay now for about 600 quid. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so did you use any other systems at your time? Yeah, so after the Commodore 64, I had a friend down the road who had an Amiga 500 and I used to go down there after school and play Lemmings and I was begging my father to get him an Amiga 500 and came home one day from school and the same uncle had left me a computer but it wasn't an Amiga 500 it was an Atari ST <laughs> I had that for I probably had that for about a year actually and you know I loved it but it wasn't the Amiga it wasn't the Amiga and I was always a bit jealous because you know all my friends were uh, you know swapping games and stuff and for the Amiga and also I couldn't do that with my ST um, didn't know anyone who had one I did a paper round every Sunday and I earned two pound a week and I saved up for, I don't know, however long, about a year or something, every Sunday doing this paper round. And I must have proved to my parents that I was sort of dedicated enough, and they put the rest towards so I could get my Amiga 600. Then I had the Amiga 600 for years and years and just some of the happiest gaming times on that. I'm mainly playing point-and-click adventure games, so I was hugely into that sort of scene, so the Monkey Islands, Lure of the Temptress, Beneath Still Sky later oh, in game. Amiga's Life. Um, also a huge fan like Cannon Fodder Sensible Soccer games like that but yeah just such an incredible machine uh, absolutely amazing blew me away I was just hooked so would you be doing any kind of de-paint stuff there as well and uh, maybe a bit of early desktop publishing or design yeah I used to I remember I used to draw lemmings um, little sprites in deluxe paint I mean they were absolutely terrible I mean I'm a, I'm a I'm a pretty decent graphic designer, I like to think, but I can never draw sprites or anything in, you know, D-Paint or anything like that. It was just mucking around, really. As far as desktop publishing goes, I remember um, I had this scrapbook, and I had a, a I don't know if you guys remember, um, a Citizen ABC colour printer for the Amiga. Yeah, really noisy. <laughs> yeah, I had that, and um, every Saturday I used to, in um, whatever the sort of programme was on the Amiga, I used to print out the football results and I'd have like coloured shirts and I'd draw the shirts in D-Paint and I'd import them and I'd put the football scores underneath and I'd print them on my printer and stick them into the scrapbook. So, yeah, I suppose it's, it's funny what sort of sticks <laughs> into your head, but that's what I used to do. Well, I, I had like um, a 24-pin dot matrix and we'd print out, do you know, like birthday banners on the track feed paper? And I'm yeah, sure, I'm sure the na- neighbours would be banging on the wall, you know what I mean? <laughs> Imagine an office full of them. Oh, God. <laughs> Happy but, days, though. But having used the Atari ST before the Amiga there, that must have give you quite a, a rounded perspective of kind of that, that 16-bit scene at the time then. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I never really thought about it at the time. When I was so young, I only ever used to really play games. You know, I, I always thought the two 
systems were very similar at the time. It was just that, I mean, as, as, as you guys are more than well aware, there was a lot of Amiga copying going on at the time, and having an Amiga meant you had access to so many more games. But yeah, I suppose, you know, those, those, the Atari and the Amiga were my two machines. Um, I never, they were the only 16-bit machines I ever owned. I never went onto consoles um, like Mega Drive or SNES. I was proper Amiga right through um, until PS1, really. What was it about the, um, the visual aspects of the, the Amiga and the Commodore 64 that really gripped you then? I think it was on the Commodore 64 mainly, um, the graphics captivated me, and I think it was because you were forced to watch the games load. Um, you know, we were so young, and it probably took about 10 minutes to load, and you'd get this amazing loading screen. And if you were lucky, you'd get a bit of music. And I can just remember at the time, you know, there was obviously nothing else to do, so you just stare at the screen and just remember thinking, like, how the hell did they do these images, you know, to actually make Robocop look like Robocop? And at the time, it looked really, really realistic. I mean, obviously now it's just, a, you know, it's really obviously low res, but I think it was that, really. Um, it, it was mainly the loading screens. Um, I think on the Amiga, obviously it had amazing graphics, but it was more gameplay of the games that, that sort of had me hooked. I even remember on the 64 when games were loading, you get that kind of flashing border as well. There's something magical about that when it was decompressing. Yeah, all the little coloured lines and everything. It's just so much, and that's kind of, I mean, sort of jumping on, but sort of inspiration for my first book on the Commodore 64, just wanting to do a book about the visual aspects of the system, just because there are so many iconic visual things, like you say, like the loading bars. Um, Everyone remembers those loading bars, just so sort of iconic. Well, I'm sitting here with a copy of the Commodore Amiga Visual Compendium, and I've noticed that it seems to be uh, quite a few extra items in there, like interviews, and there's kind of different sections covered, like D-Pain, even X-Copy, and I must say this is probably one of the best Amiga books that I've ever read. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's not one of these coffee table ones. It's uh, I think it's uh, one that you take to bed <laughs> and sit there and read there, because it's uh, over 400 pages. You know? Ravi ignoring his girlfriend tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, your company, Bitmap Books, um, tell us how it started and why. i Obviously, been a bit, been a graphic designer. I always, I saw there was a few other retro books sort of out at the time, um, sort of around about 2014, and I thought to myself that you know I could I could do that. There wasn't really one on the Commodore 64 that was highly designed, um, and I obviously felt that I could make do a pretty good job of it. That's where it all started, really. Um, it was just to produce a book on the Commodore 64 um, as sort of like a hobby project, which ended up being crowdfunded on Kickstarter. Um, just purely because that's obviously a great way of getting interest and you know getting the sort of the funding to get it printed. The visual compendium, as I've sort of coined the sort of the series, sort of snowballed from there really. And, uh, well, what yeah. amazes me is um, there's lots of screenshots and the kind of images you've chosen are really great representations of the game. I was wondering. Did you have to go through every single game and play it to a point and then somehow get the images of it? Yeah, yeah. So literally running them through emulators and taking screenshots. I mean, some of the, some obviously like the intro um, screenshots where they're sort of like readily available online. So you just sort of, you can just obviously just use those because they're not sort of unique. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of playing games, taking screenshots, picking the best ones and then tinkering with them in photoshop so you can sort of blow them up without losing any quality um, but you know obviously i'm hugely into sort of the amiga and retro gaming in general so it's not doesn't really feel like a chore if you know what i mean and i learned so much about games that you know i didn't even know existed on the amiga 
I never played before. So it was really fascinating. Yeah, to there's sort levels of... I haven't seen on this before that I, I never got to. And I was like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> what's that bit of the game? So who do you say these books are for then? Are they for like old school gamers who play these games originally or a new audience is interested in them too? Um, I think it's an interesting question. I think obviously predominantly I think it's old gamers who want a little trip down memory lane. You know, you can flick open the book and because it's very visual, I believe that the visuals are the best way of sort of, you know, sparking those sort of memories um, from your childhood. So I think it's definitely people that are after a bit of a nostalgia fix. Um, every now and again and then maybe there's some more hardcore sort of gamers or fans of the Amiga for instance that are interested in it Um, but I certainly do think there's maybe some people who aren't necessarily into retro gaming that um, might have had an Amiga when they were younger but they're not into gaming now um, and they might sort of pick it up as like a a gift or something you know just some sort of fun thing to have to remember their childhood well um one book that you sent us artcade uh, is absolutely fabulous i come from a, a contemporary background we have a lot of books that are kind of presented in this really nice way where it's just an image spread over it and uh, did you kind of aim to go for that more uh, more of a wider audience with this arcade arcade actually is an interesting story because the visual compendium books are actually sort of like a bitmap books product if you like that's our sort of series something that happened last year was that due to the sort of success of my other books of the visual compendiums i started getting approached by other authors who had you know made a book but didn't know how to get it published didn't know how to get it printed and needed sort of a bit of a helping hand um, and Arcade was one of those. So the author of the book, a guy called Tim Nichols, needed some help to, you know, realise this idea he had. Um, and he'd actually inherited or purchased a whole load of old arcade uh, um, like marquees from a props company in America. And they were in a terrible condition. And he spent, I don't know how many hours it says in the book, but a lot of hours in Photoshop scanning and sort of retouching all the halftone patterns and all this sort of stuff. And... Um, yeah, so the book, I can't take credit for the actual, the way the book looks. That's sort of his his sort of dream, really, that. And all I did was sort of help sort of bring it to life and publish it and print it and all that sort of stuff. But, no, it's a gorgeous book, and I'm very sort of proud of it. We all remember the arcades, don't we? Not really gamers now. Everyone remembers the arcades, even if it was on holiday in Butlins or whatever or local seaside town. Uh, no, yes, yeah, so I think you're definitely right. And also, I think... It's uh, it's got quite a big appeal in America that book because obviously the arcades over there were huge, so it's interesting that it's um, yeah not 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 necessarily UK centric or Europe centric like the Amiga book. I was going to ask actually, what memories have you got of the arcade era? Well, I was brought up in a little seaside town called Minehead, which is in Somerset, um, and so we had uh, I was very lucky we had sort of two massive arcades on the seafront. Um, so my memories of of arcades are sneaking in there up to the cigarette machine, um, putting our money in and <laughs> misspent youth smoking around the back of the arcade, playing <laughs> playing games like track and field and all the buttons are all got cigarette burned and stuff in them. No, but I just, it's just, I remember the noise, the smell, the sticky carpets, just the row and row of um, arcade machines. And I, I, I remember it being really exciting as a youngster because you had a lot of, older kids in there playing like street fighter 2 and it was quite intimidating but you know you felt quite cool being in there um and also i used to work down butlins as well um helping people carry their luggage and they had a huge flows of been in um, butlins in minehead 
absolutely huge arcade right in the middle. So I used to play games, again, like Street Fighter 2, which was huge at the time, and, you know, games like Klax and Narc. Yeah, so I was exposed to a lot of arcade machines. As, as it, sort of, I'd say, sort of early 90s when I sort of would, would start going to the arcade when I was sort of old enough. Well, I guess these are kind of arcade banners were also with these really bright colours to, you know, catch kids' attention, and they had to have, you know, the top design to get everyone to come and play the new machine. Yeah, and that's it, and they would have been backlit, wouldn't they? So they would have really stood out. I remember the first time I saw Mortal Kombat in an arcade as well, and it was, you know, you'd hear about these games and then you actually got to play them for the first time. It's something that's hard to convey to people that, you know, didn't live through that era, though, isn't it? Ah, absolutely. I remember the first time I saw Mortal Kombat as well, and it just felt, like I feel I said a minute ago, it just felt so so exciting, didn't it? So, like, cutting edge. I just feel sorry for the kids, like, nowadays. Like my, like my, like my daughter at the moment, she's nine, and we go to the arcade on holiday and, you know, her memories are going to be of two pence pushers, yeah. you know, rather than the amazing games that we saw. Do you miss Big. arcades? Um, I do. I mean, yeah. I mean, I sort of associate arcades with being younger. I mean, I'm sort of a boring husband now and dad. So, but no, I, I definitely, definitely miss the sort of the atmosphere, I guess. And I really want to go to the, um, the arcade up in Bury. I um, don't know if you guys are aware of that one. Up near Manchester, there's a huge one called Arcade Club. Um, and whenever I go to Play Expo, um, I always head to the arcade bit. Just because you just can't get that experience at home. So it does feel like something you don't get to do that all that often. So it does feel special, I think. Yeah, we go to Play as well and we love it, but there is one thing missing. The smell of, like, you know, stale cigarettes and sticky carpets. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the same, is it? <laughs> That's it. Well... One thing I found is it seems to be kind of a new trend that um, you seem to be riding on at the moment, especially with the name Bitmap Books, is um, kind of the love for pixels that is coming back in a lot of new games that are doing, you know, indie games, pixel-style stuff. Years ago, people hated the pixels, you know. It's such a turnaround. <laughs> I know. It's actually something that I've always, <clears throat> excuse me, I've always sort of had to sort of defend a little bit this because um, when I first started doing the books, I had a lot of people saying you shouldn't be showing the pixels like that because, you know, back in the day they would have had scan lines and they would have been all blurry and anti-aliasing and all this sort of stuff. But I really, really wanted to show the crispness and the almost like the Lego-like, you know, building block of how these guys would have had to construct them. I just love that rawness um, of, of the pixels. But yeah, you're right. No, it's all got everything's gone pixel mad now. It's uh <laughs> It's everywhere. But even looking through the books, you like you blow them all up as well, so it's really obvious. Yeah, I think I think some of them. I've in the first book, I think I blew some of them up a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Um, it went a bit too low resolution, <laughs> but it's, I just think it's fascinating to see just the amount of work and the talent that went into creating these images. It's just it's just mind blowing, really. Especially on the Amiga book, some of the graphics in there are just are just amazing, aren't they? Like the Moonstone, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, they're, just incredible. they're absolutely beautiful. And even stuff like Lemmings, you, the, the shot that you've chosen for Lemmings and the way that you've zoomed it in really yeah. kind of represents the pixels. And, you know, you could have just have a standard level up there, but no, you've really got action going on in there. Yeah, what, one of the things on the Amiga book as well, which, which really blew me away, was uh, the amount of contributors I got um, in there. And I think I was just really lucky in that I just managed, like, so many people said yes, basically. I mean, you guys must know what it's like trying to get people onto the podcast. And, you know, some people say yes, some people say no. And I felt like I pretty much covered, you know, all the big graphics guys and coders in that um, in that book. There's a couple missing, but I think it was a really good sort of spread. And, you know, I was really chuffed to be able to speak to people like Dan Malone and, 
Andrew Morris, who are sort of heroes of mine. I absolutely love their work. Well, that's one of the things we found as well doing this show, the fact that, you know, you, you get to kind of chat to people that were, like you said, your childhood heroes. And, you know, similar to tell you like 20 years ago that you'd be interviewing Jim Sachs, for example, you'd have probably been like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> and also the way that they don't really, some some people just don't understand why you're interested, mm-hmm. you know, which is which I find amazing. You know, they're so humble and down to earth. Yeah, just love like, it, really. people still interested in that? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, massively. Well, in your Amiga book, you've also covered some rather obscure elements of the Amiga. Like you've got a section on the CDT, TV in there as well. Um, how did you kind of do your research on that? Well, I've got pretty good knowledge of the Amiga sort of generally, so I've sort of had a pretty good grounding. And I work with a guy uh, called Matthew Wilshire, who is a really huge Amiga fan, a friend of mine. And so it was really useful to have someone like a different perspective um, on the Amiga. And he he was a huge help in sort of saying, oh, you know, you should look at this game and, you know, helping out with different... He did a lot of help with the demo scene as well. Um, but the CDTV was something I was aware of and um, it had such a... Because obviously the book's all about the visual side of things. I think the splash screen with the rocks, with the laser, I think is quite iconic. That was Jim Sachs, like, wasn't it? He did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I wanted to include that. And I actually interviewed the guy who created the, the CD TV um, uh, for the book. And there's only a small comment in there from him, but it was really great to talk to him. And he was telling me the amount of time that him and Jim spent on the user interface, um, which I know, you know, the CD TV was, was a bit of a flop, but all of that stuff was pretty cutting edge, you know, these sort of visual menus, you know, that we're sort of used to nowadays on DVD players and all that sort of stuff. And I know, yeah, so it's just, I just wanted to touch on it in the book and I wanted to pretty much cover a little bit of all of the Amiga stuff, you know, not, not, not in, I mean, it doesn't go into huge amounts of detail, but it's just a little, a little nod to all the different areas. Yeah, I just love how you've got, you know, unreleased game section and you know a, a little x copy section it's amazing <laughs> yeah you could not put x copy in there it's such a huge part of you know i know developers hated it but it's it you can't get away from the fact that it was huge wasn't it for all of us and you know who can forget that clicking sound and the little light bulbs and i used to i used to run home at lunchtime from school fire up the amiga and copy these discs and it's just it's all just ingrained in our in our childhoods isn't it all these things well, everyone says that, yeah, Lemmings or, you know, something like that sold the most Amigas. No, it didn't. X-Copy sold the most Amigas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember the, I hang out and, you know, a lot of the Commodore forums and that as well. I do remember the excitement around, you know, your Commodore 64 book and then the announcement of the Amiga one as well. What was kind of the um, the feedback that you got from the community? I'd say 90, 95% was really, really positive. And I think a, a book that's very visual isn't going to be to everyone's taste. I think some people are going to want more more sort of content to read. Um, but I think the majority of people really, really loved what I was doing. And I think it was quite different to what everyone else was doing, you know, because it was very, very visual. The main feedback was, we love the Commodore 64, but what's next? And that's what I've sort of had all the way through, really. You know, what's next, Sam? And the Amiga felt like the natural progression because it was my, well, apart from the ST, but it was my next computer. But no, I mean, the feedback has just been you know, absolutely incredible on what I'm doing. And I'm so grateful to everyone who sort of supports me and obviously buys the books and, you know, keeps me going with ultimately what is a hobby for me because I just find it fascinating learning about these systems and, you know, playing games, taking screenshots and stuff. It's, it doesn't feel like a chore to me, you know. Do people ever get annoyed that their favourite game isn't in there? Yeah, you do, get, <laughs> you do get a bit of that. But 
you know, I think I learned very early in doing this that you can't please everyone because I used to try and it's just mm. impossible. <laughs> I don't know if you get those, that list of like the top 10 games and, you know, everyone has their own opinion on it, don't they? Yeah, you know, some people say, why did you choose that screenshot? And, mm. you know, this is wrong, that's wrong. But, you know, I, I don't think they're really, I mean, they are serious books, but they're not. They are supposed to be, there's supposed to be a bit of a fun element to them. You know, they're not, as you can see, they're not massively in debt. It's just a snapshot. Well, recently, you know, we've had like the Bedrooms to Billions Amiga Years documentary and there's that Viva Amiga one coming out soon as well and obviously your books right now. Why do you think the Amiga's suddenly like become back in the mainstream like 20 years later? I don't know. I think I've only been sort of back into retro gaming really for about the last sort of four or five years. Um, but since I've been sort of back into it, I think the Amiga felt like the Nintendo and Sega Mega Drives and all this sort of stuff get a lot of the headlines and a lot of the attention. And I felt like, I think... When I did the Amiga book, I think it was at a good time, and I felt people were desperate for something to do something with the Amiga. Um, and I think they were, at last, you know, someone's doing something for our system. Um, so I think it was quite good timing from that point of view. And then obviously, I think the Amiga film came after the book, so it sort of, you know, sort of. There's been quite a few Amiga things recently, hasn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know really. It's a good question. I don't know why <laughs> why it hasn't sort of in the past. Bit of a sleeping giant, I suppose. The timing was just right, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. Well, what what ignited your um, interest in retro gaming again? Then I, I don't know if this is going to be the same for a lot of people, but have children, get married, and you know you have a job, and you sort of sort sort of start looking for hobbies and stuff in the evening, I suppose. And I've always had this sort of the I've always been into games, and but I've always been a very nostalgic person. I listen to a lot of old music and watch a lot of old films i hardly watch any sort of modern stuff i think it, it sort of never went if you like it's just when i start getting more time on my hands and i started thinking oh i can do a bit of gaming now and i thought well i'm not interested in modern games so i want to play some Commodore 64 games and it probably just started from there watching a lot of youtube videos getting back into it and yeah i think i got a psp and put all the emulators and stuff on there and and then got the real hardware, and then you get the collecting bug and all that sort of stuff, and it sort of starts taking over your life a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Have you got the original systems now, then? I have, yeah. I've got a... Um, I've only got two original systems. I've got a Commodore 64 um, breadbox, and I've got an Amiga 1200 with what are those hard drive things inside with oh, the HD load. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> pimped up, and I've, I've made um, retro bright on it and stuff. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's under my telly in the front room pride of place in the front room and it has to be the breadbox commodore 64 doesn't it not that oh, it has world. to be it has to, <laughs> absolutely and i've got a load of cassettes and stuff and I, you just can't beat the real thing i don't think it's just something about the amiga that clicking sound of the drive and all that it's just so so wonderful I, I I love playing, loading it up and having a game of Premier Manager every now and again or Sensible Soccer or Cannon Fodder and stuff. It's just, you know, I'm 10 years old again. Well, uh, <laughs> a massive company that we've actually not covered that much in the Retro Hour, you've created a book about, which is A Gremlin in the Works. Yes. Yeah, so why did you feel the story of Gremlin needed to be told? Well, I didn't, but it, didn't. Mark Hardesty <laughs> did, who's the author. Who? Uh, yeah. So this is another book that... Um, that sort of come come to me if you like um but mark hardesty um in, an incredible guy um born and bred in sheffield um used to spend his childhood in just micro the local computer shop and you know 
got got to a certain age and um, in his in his adult life and wanted to tell this story of Gremlin, um, this huge Sheffield company. And I think he spent two years researching Gremlin, um, interviewing. So the first thing he did was that he met Ian Stewart, who's the founder, and um, Ian basically gave his blessing for the book um, and gave Mark complete access to all the old developers, um, artists, and musicians. So Mark started interviewing everyone, piecing together this book. Um, and I don't think at the time he really knew you know, it, it was going to be a big book or anything. I think he just wanted to sort of get this story down. And um, towards the end of his <clears throat> sort of putting it all together, um, we spoke and talked about the possibility of um, Bitmap Books turning it into a into an actual book and getting it printed. And yeah, we had a whale of a time sort of pulling pulling it together in the end. And what 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 we're actually um, ended up with now is essentially two books within one slipcase. Mm-hmm. So the first book tells the, the first sort of um, early 80s to 1989, and then the sort of covering obviously the 8-bits, then the early 16-bit era, and then the second book covers 16-bit and 32-bit, um, right up until um, Sumo Digital, who uh, are obviously in Sheffield now and are pretty much what Gremlin graphics sort of would have been. Sort of if they still were, with a lot of the ex-employees still there. Um, <clears throat> it's an absolutely huge book. It's sort of 600 pages. Pretty much interviews every single ex-employee of Gremlin. I don't know how many words it's got, but it's it's got lo- thousands and thousands and thousands of words. It's got loads of um, scans of old letters, uh, royalty invoices, business cards, um, design documents, uh, screenshots from games. It's just a real sort of tribute to gremlin in it sort of covers everything really from right from the start right until the end and that was out a couple of days ago now so that's sort of arriving on people's through people's letterboxes well it wouldn't fit for a letterbox but um, <laughs> you're gonna card through the door <laughs> yeah they would yeah yeah they would but, but I, I love uh, how minimal the cover is as well because you've just got a green cover and then that gremlin logo that everybody will remember that was a gamer in that era yeah and i don't know if you can tell from pictures online but that the the, the solid color of the slipcase is actually fluorescent as well mm-hmm. So it really does, it really is vibrant. <laughs> you know, that's the sort of thing I like to do. I like to use special inks and different types of paper just to make things a little bit more interesting. Well, also, I mean, looking at your uh, Sinclair ZX Spectrum uh, compendium as well, I mean, you mentioned you're more of a Commodore boy. What kind of inspired doing a Spectrum book? Well, growing up, I was always exposed to the Spectrum because my, my two best friends, one had the um, Amstrad CPC green screen, so he was always the brunt of the jokes. Um, I have a friend had the ZX Spectrum and I had the Commodore so we all used to play the same games and compare different versions on our systems and we we each liked each other's systems and I think the ZX Spectrum obviously I was doing this series of books and it it can't be ignored you know from a historical point of view and its importance in the games industry and also you know yes it had color clash but its graphics were wonderfully high res and the colors were amazing and I just felt like it would make a really, really cool book. And yeah, you know, I'll admit it was it was difficult to it required a lot of research from me to um, really understand the games. But I kind of quite enjoyed that because doing the Commodore sixty four and the Amiga was quite easy from a research research point of view. But I had to push myself with the Spectrum book, and I'm glad I did because I discovered so many games that I never would have found out about if I hadn't have done the book. 
So, yeah, it was really good from that point. And of view. I, I kind of like how the background's black as well and the Amiga ones are white. It's like the yeah. reverse, you know, <laughs> it's great. A lot of Spectrum games are being, I, I didn't, I was never a Spectrum owner, but like you, you know, I had friends that did have them. Mm. And even looking at the back of like cassette tape boxes and seeing those screenshots, the Spectrum visuals always did stand out. Maybe it's a color palette, I'm not really sure, but they always kind of did look very vibrant colors as well. So you, you always got stitched up, didn't you, with those, with those back covers? Because it said, you always buy in a Commodore 64 game and it showed the Amiga graphics or something. It was never <laughs> it was never for the version you were buying. Little asterisks, yeah, screenshots <laughs> may not be from your platform at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, the, the Spectrum had amazing graphics. I mean, some of the ultimate play the game you know, games and were really nice and high res and crisp. Um, yeah, just, and w- one of the things we did in the Spectrum book as well was we used fluorescent inks because obviously the Spectrum color palette's really, really vibrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just wouldn't have been able to mimic that in four color print. So we used a, um, a fluorescent green and a fluorescent pink, which is just a bit sort of hurts your eyes a little bit, but. It, it certainly stands out, and I think it does get across that sort of the sort of madness of the Spectrum's color palette. Have you got any plans to do any more systems then? Yeah, I mean, so as I said at the moment, we're doing the the NES and Famicom, and that's my first sort of foray into the consoles. I suppose after that, I mean, there's so many systems to cover. I mean, if people are still interested in buying them, then, then I'll keep going. I mean, the ones that I would really like to cover, I mean, the Super Nintendo is one that, will definitely be covered. Um, Sega Mega Drive, maybe the Sega Mars system. Um, I mean, I will have to cover Atari, which is obviously a huge, huge sort of subject. Mm-hmm. And then going on to the sort of 32-bit um, systems, obviously the Sony PlayStation. You could, you could <laughs> theoretically go forever, though, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> you Just could wait do. for systems to go obsolete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll be, yeah, maybe I'll come back on in 15 years' time and I'll be doing uh, Xbox 360 one yeah. day, <laughs> or Wii U <laughs> Wii U yeah <laughs> well, it's been lovely talking to you Sam thank um, you so much guys really enjoyed it and if people want to find out more about your books where can they head to uh, so my website is www.bitmapbooks.co.uk that's where you can buy the books if you like or find out more information about them and on the website as well there's links to sort of Facebook and Twitter and all those sort of social media bits there but yeah the website's the main place mm-hmm.